Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so pleased to have Hannah Tinty joining us. Uh, Hannah's joining us by phone from New York City. Welcome, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, well, it's great. I'm sorry we missed each other in person, but this is the next best thing then, because um, you were here in Ann Arbor. You were here for a whirlwind, um, what was it, like just a number of hours, like a day and a half? or About that, yeah, about um, <laughs> a little under 48 hours. <laughs> yeah, that's, and it seems like that's you're no stranger to that sort of pace and, and schedule moving around. I've been doing a lot of visits, um, travels overseas for the foreign editions of my book, and also visiting a lot of universities. It's been fun, but a little exhausting. Yes. And well, well, you know, I hope you have a cup of tea or coffee there. Um, (laughs) It's that time of the afternoon, too, because we're taping this on the 5th of April, 2010. Um, And uh, well, Hannah, the book that you're mentioning, uh, the one that we're we're going to hear a little bit from later uh, this hour, The Good Thief, um, and it's out with Dial Press um, in this country. And it was just um, released then in Spain. And what what other countries? Because I love the cover, the Spanish cover, I think I saw on your website. Site. Oh, thanks. Um, it is. It's been sold in seventeen countries, um, but oftentimes with foreign editions, they come out later. So so far, it's been released in the Netherlands, in Germany, in France, and in Spain, and in China, actually. Wow! Wow! So the good thief is making the rounds. Yes. <laughs> and and it got quite like it was got quite faded here as well. Like it was um it's it's a great book. It was out originally in 2008, right Hannah and 2009 paperback edition. Is That's that, right. It the, came out in the fall of 2008 and then the paperback came out fall 2009. Wow. And and this book it just keeps on going. <laughs> it's got long legs. It's been more and more things keep happening with it. So I've been really thrilled. And you know what? Let me read your short biography because some things um, might be mentioned there, and then we'll 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 take it from there. How does that sound, Hannah? Sounds great. Okay. Hannah Tinty grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, and is co-founder and editor in chief of One Story Magazine. Her short story collection, Animal Crackers, has sold in 16 countries and was a runner-up for the Penn Hemingway Award. Her first novel, The Good Thief, is published by The Dial Press and Headline. The Good Thief is a New York Times Notable Book of the Year, recipient of the American Library Association's Alex Award, and winner of the John Sargent Sr. First Novel Prize. Hannah also also recently won the 2009 Penn Nora Magid Award for her editorial work at One Story. I hope I got Nora's last name right on that, Hannah. Yeah. <laughs> you probably... every, every time someone says it, they, they usually pronounce it a different way, but they, you did fine. Oh, great. Oh, great. Well, so, so The Good Thief, because um, the Alex Award um, that from the Library Association, that's a really um, an interesting award because it's a book that's written you know, for the adult sphere, but that has special appeal for a youth audience. Right. That's right. It's really it was it was exciting when that when the Good Thief won that because it suddenly opened up the book to a whole new audience and now a lot of teenagers and junior high schoolers are reading it and I'm doing a lot of school visits and for that. Yes, and that and now is that something that you um, thought because on your website where because people could check check that out too while listening. Um, 
Uh, you have even pictures of some of the classes. There's also been um, maybe some MFA programs or writing programs that have used the book, and then some some um, some younger readers too. I think these new class visits that we're talking about. Um, it's been exciting. I think one of the exciting things for me about the Good Thief is that it has appeal to a really broad audience. So I've been visiting people of all ages, you know, from junior high and high schoolers to college students, which I just did at the University of Michigan, to graduate students, to um, continuing ed programs, people who are much older. So uh, everybody seems to be enjoying it. It seems to be appealing to all different ages. And and, um, and so is that something that when you're when you're writing the book, because Animal Crackers, um, you had great success with the, the short story um, uh, format. And so so looking towards the novel, um, was that something? I, I know that you were taking uh, was it a Dickens and Robert Louis Stevenson as as guides, like books that you just good books that you loved to read because um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if when writing this like what was your what was what what did you want at the heart of the story because that might I, I'm wondering explain that how it is appealing to so many different ages it's well, I wasn't, when I was writing the book, I was just trying to write a novel. Um, it, the whole thing really began when I came across this phrase, resurrection men. Um, it was, it came from this book a friend gave me called Forgotten English by Jeffrey Kasich, which is about words that have fallen out of use in the English language. And as soon as I read that phrase, um, I thought, well, that's really a beautiful word, resurrection men. And then I read the definition and was horrified because <laughs> resurrection men are actually thieves who would dig up bodies and sell them to medical schools and it proliferated both in this country and in overseas um, as medical schools you know started to establish themselves and they needed cadavers to work on so this black market began and of course what these men were doing was the worst thing imaginable desecrating a grave and really they were just doing it for the money but what interested me was that ultimately it did lead to a greater good um, because these doctors needed bodies to work on in order to save lives. So whenever there's a moral murky situation like that, I'm drawn to it as a writer. And so I just thought, well, let me write a scene and explore this, see where it goes. And in my mind, I saw a big iron fence um, surrounding a graveyard, and on one side were the resurrection men unearthing the graves, and on the other side, I decided they'd need a horse and carriage to carry the bodies and a lookout of some kind. And as I was describing the lookout, I decided it was a young boy, and I was just physically describing him and realized that he was missing his left hand. As soon as I realized this boy was missing his left hand, he opened up for me as a character, and I realized that this wasn't just going to be a short story. It was going to be a novel, and it was all going to be about this boy, how he fell in, fell in with these dangerous characters, how he lost his hand, and, you know, what his story was. So the book is really an homage to the boys' adventure tales that made me fall in love with reading as a young girl, things like... Great Expectations and Oliver Twist and also Treasure Island um, by Robert Louis Stevenson. So they have that sort of very fast-paced feel and uh, tale of adventure. I wanted to go back to old-fashioned storytelling in a way and be the kind of book that you would sort of stay up all night and read under the covers. 
Yes. And so, and that's what I think I was trying to, to get at with you, Hannah, too, because it's like this, this idea of the old fashioned book and that being for everyone, not necessarily like this defined market or audience, like the adult market, the youth market, or, yeah. the, you know, and which shelf do you put it on? Um, exactly. <laughs> sort of thing. And so that was at the, that was driving it, like this idea of the good, the, the old fashioned story. It was also because I was very intimidated up until this point. I'd only written short stories, so I, I, I was terrified at trying to write a novel, which I knew you know, would take years and years of my life. And then I remembered that Dickens actually wrote his, most of his novels, he serialized them in yes. magazines. So each chapter in his books has a sort of individual arc and can almost stand alone, but at the same time makes you want to pick up the newspaper the next week and read the next installment. So I started looking at his books to sort of use as a guide to frame this book, and I tried to write each chapter in a similar fashion. And can can you explain that? Like, give us an example of one of the chapters, Hannah, like where it would be um, like the starting point with the arc, because they're like then these mini arcs that you're building in it. Yes, each story, it sort of has a beginning, middle, and an end, but that but is what I mean. So rather than just sort of have one scene actually have, you know, an entire event happen, mm-hmm. um, like the... The first chapter uh, starts off with Wren, who is that small boy who I found in the graveyard who is missing his left hand, who is at an orphanage called St. Anthony's Orphanage for Boys. He was left at this orphanage as an infant um, when his hand was cut off before he was left at the orphanage. So this missing hand is really his mystery that he's trying to solve throughout his whole life. And so the first chapter is actually him being lined up in front of a statue of St. Anthony along with all these other boys to potentially be adopted. And he is at first picked, and then when the farmer discovers who who came to pick him, realizes that he's missing his left hand, he actually decides to pick another boy instead because, Mm -hmm. you know, Ren is maimed and will not be helpful working on a farm. And this happens to him again and again, so this is sort of a repeat of, of, of his story that people try to adopt him and then you know, once they realize he's damaged goods, they, they leave him behind. So um, that ended up being how the whole thing was, you know, started off. And and then the farmer then picks a, uh, a different boy. He picks a different boy and leaves Ren behind. And, and that's... Um Let's see. And and then and Ren goes to reading. And that's how the that first chapter um, ends. Like, we meet a couple more characters. Because we're just trying to understand, like, the... Wait, let's see. That idea. Because I love that idea of how you look to Dickens and then model the... Yeah, by having a beginning, a middle, and end, I mean that, you know, the, the characters are introduced. There's an action, you know, the scene of someone coming to adopt. They go through the process of the adoption, and then he decides on another boy and then leaves him behind. So almost that could, that could be its own short story and stand on its own, just sort of this story of a boy being disappointed in this way. Yes. Yeah. And it's really, and it's wonderful with the horse too, because that's actually how the first chapter ends is that like this, this connection that the farmer has with his horse. And that, that then of course becomes important, um, in the next, uh, well, in a couple of chapters hence. Um. Yes. The farmer's horse in that first chapter ends up reappearing in the, in the novel and becoming very important later on. Right. So even if the farmer fades away. Yes. The horse remains. 
Um, and and so Hannah, when when did you like when you were writing through this? So it sounds like the scene that you described that first came to you came to you, and it's now it's in the middle of the book. Exactly, um, it's chapter fifteen. When is the writer? Did you know what happened to Ren's hand? Since that's like a driving mystery for the book itself. When when did um, when did you, when did it come to you? Oh, not until much later on. <laughs> I knew that eventually I'd figure out what happened to him um, as he goes on this journey to really find out his own personal history, and that is, of course, connected to this missing hand. Uh, he has this missing physical part of him and a missing sort of spiritual part of him as well that he's trying to, a mystery that he's trying to solve. And it was a difficult mystery to solve. It took me a long time to figure out what had actually happened to him as well. Well, well let's take a short break, and then we'll come back and we'll hear more. And maybe Maybe would you mind reading us a piece of, of The Good Thief when we I'd come I'd be glad back? to. Oh, wonderful. Today on the program, Hannah Tinty. I'm T. Hetzel. Uh, we've got her, her novel, The Good Thief, and we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back. Got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Hannah Tinty is joining us um, over the phone from New York City. Hannah, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and that were you able to hear the song during the break? Uh, yes, yes, I was a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> the beautiful boy by John Lennon. Um, one of your picks from because um, we've been we talked about at the beginning how you've been really doing the rounds uh, and talking to many different people, uh, school kids to the BBC, and this particular song surfaced uh, for you in Australia. Uh, That's right. right. I did a radio morning program um, called Triple J in uh, Australia, and they asked me to pick several songs of. Uh, of musicians who were dead, um, but at the same time, they had to be upbeat songs, so it was funny, um, and have something to do with The Good Thief. So Beautiful Boy is a great song by Don Lennon, and I picked it for the character of Ren, who's the main character of my book. And he does seem like just a really lovely, lovely boy. Like and Exactly. He, and it's great, too, that I love that he's not... Um, because not so much time passes over the course of it so that he's still the the same youthful boy, although not the same, <laughs> obviously much yes. changed too, but uh, that same young boy at the end. Exactly. Just a little, a little, a little worse for the wear, but, but he, 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 he ends up in a better place. I do give him a happy ending. 
And that's something about the redemption part that you're you were that was drawing you through the, the whole way through the good thief. Absolutely. The more I wrote, the more I realized that this book, the the phrase that had started the whole project, Resurrection Men, uh, what had really drawn me wasn't necessarily this idea of grave robbing, even though I'm from Salem, Massachusetts, so (laughs) this sort of gothic world is something I'm really familiar with. It was also this word resurrection, and I realized that this book really is about um, resurrection of the self, both in a physical sense and also in a spiritual sense, and reinvention of the self, particularly through storytelling. And and I loved how um, in the back of the book you have um, there's some pages like the note to the readers um, or for the um, reading groups and um, and there and you mention how Saint Anthony is actually the patron saint of think not only of lost things so going along with Ren losing his hand and maybe and losing his past his family but um, but also he's the one that um, is the patron saint of storytelling too is that and you weren't making that up were you. <laughs> He is um, he's known for being a great orator. Uh, he told great stories, and one of his one of his miracles is that he went out to preach to people, and nobody would listen to him. So he walked to the ocean, and all these fish came out of the ocean to listen to him tell his tell his sermon. Um, and I went to his basilica in Padua, and um, they have all these relics of his. And um, another one of his miracles is that his tongue is incorrupt, which means that it did not disintegrate over time. So they actually have his tongue in a in a golden chalice, a big black tongue <laughs> wow. that supposedly you know did not disintegrate, did not sort of crumble to dust because he was speaking the word of God. Wow, wow. I wonder if it really is St. Anthony's tongue. Who knows? Those relics, those relics you never know. <laughs> That's the great thing about relics. Like, I mean, yes. there's probably a few of those tongues floating around, right? Probably. Um, <laughs> this particular tongue is very famous. Okay. <laughs> I love how you also include the lives of saints, like the, a book in here that has a connection to your own life growing up, uh, also a raised Catholic. Um, and yes. could you, cause I, and it's, cause those stories, I, I mean, when you're saying like he, he got upset, so he walks to the sea to, you know, and the fish listen to him. I mean, that's, that's really something else. That's it's great. pretty wild. <laughs> I, 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 I did, I grew up Catholic. I, I'm from, I'm half Italian and half Irish background and went through Catholic school. And so for, for Ren, I wanted him to have a similar kind of Catholic upbringing. And for him, the first stories that he hears are stories from the Bible and stories from the lives of the saints, which are actually very exciting and interesting tales and pretty wild and very entertaining. Yes, and and you managed to find yourself like um, a patron saint for the book, as, as well as to work the lives of saints into the book. Exactly. <laughs> well, could, could we hear some of the story, Hannah? Would you mind reading us a part? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, I'm going to read a page from Chapter 11, and uh, this is about a story that's being told uh, Ren, who starts his life at an orphanage called St. Anthony's Orphanage for Boys, and he's passed over again and again for adoption. One day, a man named Benjamin Nab arrives and claims that Ren as his long-lost brother. But it's not long before they leave the orphanage that Ren discovers that Benjamin Nab is actually a con man and a grave robber and a thief. And they are, um, I'm just going to read a little bit about 
them. This is, you know, after they've been traveling around a bit, and they're, they've been hanging out in a town called Granston and hanging out in bars. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, and Ren's 11, Hannah? Ren's about 11 years old, yes. And, oh, and the only other thing you need to know is that Tom is the sort of their cohort in this gang of of thieves that Ren has been brought into. And and he's always soused. And he's always, yes, he's an alcoholic ex school teacher. The children drove him to drink. Watch out, children. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so I'm just going to read about a page here. A nor'easter came through Granston a few weeks later. The harbor froze several feet deep, hard enough to walk across. The fishermen came out each morning and broke their boats free with pickaxes, then raised their sails in the snow and cast their nets and pulled their lobster traps from the water. Ren spent most of his time in the basement rereading the Deer Slayer. Tom and Benjamin played cards or went out to the local saloon. In the middle of January, Tom came down with a chicken pox. Ren had caught it years before at St. Anthony's, and Benjamin said he had had it as a child, so Tom spent a month alone in bed, itching and moaning. Ren was glad of this, for Benjamin took him to the saloon instead and taught him how to smoke a pipe and gave him ale to drink, and together they would have a comfortable supper, and afterward, Benjamin would tell stories. Benjamin liked to talk about his supposed life as a sailor and all the places he'd traveled to over the years. He said that he'd crossed mighty rivers and deserts, volcanoes and mountains, and in these places he'd seen lizards and monkeys, cows with hairy udders and fish with three eyes. He spoke of the time he'd been sold as a slave in Morocco and nearly eaten by cannibals in the South Seas, and how once he'd visited the harem of a Turkish prince and seen a thousand women dressed in solid gold. Ren watched the other men in the bar, their mouths open, shifting their chairs closer to here. They were mostly local fishermen and had tales of their own about strange creatures they'd seen out on the water and men cut in half by their own rigging. They displayed scars where hooks had gone through their bodies, and it was always at that point in the evening when Benjamin would call Ren forward and ask him to show the missing hand. Sometimes Benjamin repeated the story of their mother and the Indian. Other times it was a lion who'd eaten Ren's hand or a snapping turtle as he dangled his fingers in a stream. The fishermen did not even seem to care which story was being told. They only laughed and passed Ren around the room so they could see. A few had their own missing parts, an ear gone from frostbite, a leg lost to a shark. An old weathered captain had a wooden hand, just as Mr. Bowers had described, and he let Ren try it on, tying the straps around his shoulder. It was three times too big and hung heavy and strange at the end of Ren's arm. The fingers opened and curved, ready to receive a shake. When the stories were finished, the bartender would buy a round of drinks. Toasts were made. Ren's scar was celebrated. He held it up and the fishermen cheered. Across the room, Benjamin raised his glass and smiled. The smile was different from the one he'd used on Father John and the farmer. His mouth was more relaxed, his eyes merry behind the grin. If Ren did not know any better, he would have believed that Benjamin had meant it. Thank you. Thanks, Hannah. That, that, that was great. It, it, it's true, this book is um, constantly like the stories within the stories, because of, especially because of Benjamin being a central character um, and such a storyteller, uh, it seems like, or, or a liar, or, <laughs> or um, 
Yeah, the more I wrote, the more I realized that storytelling was really sort of essential to this book. And that is another type of resurrection, a sort of reinvention. Um, by every time they get into a scrape, Benjamin Nabb tells a more fantastic story that gets them out mm-hmm. of it. And eventually he teaches Wren how to tell a story himself. And this really becomes a weapon for Wren. And at the end of the story, he tells this enormous tale that saves his life. Yes. And uh, yes, and almost deflects it to someone else, actually, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's a great, it is a great, it's a whopper at the end. And you yeah, can... it, it's a powerful thing, storytelling. Uh, maybe I believe that because I'm a writer myself, but I do think that it can um, change things. Well, because it makes it a new kind of history, doesn't it? Somehow, Absolutely. In the telling. And it almost changes the truth. It can change reality. If you if you you can take something and retell it a different way, and suddenly that becomes the truth. That becomes almost what really happened. So um, that's something that Ren learns himself. And when were you finding these? Did did you find more of these realizations because of this this novel? The writing of it and the revision took six years. Hannah, was that the the pretty much from start to finish, from my very first draft of the first chapter to when it came out. six years and and so because you were saying that what what one of the realizations you had was that this this book this novel itself is about storytelling there's something about like a homage to it or just the the necessity of of this the story um is now is that something that you also found um when writing like do you think the novel allows for more of those realizations um now that you have the collection of short stories animal crackers and other short stories um then and then now now you have this novel um was did you feel like that was part of the the difference in the writing of this novel or not so much the the realizations come at you in the same way with the the short story well, it's a it's a it's a different process. Um, right, the difference between writing a short story and writing a novel, um, you you sort of have to meander more, and uh, you know the themes are much larger and more complicated. So, with a short story. You know, I, do, I work on them a lot and do a lot of editing on short stories because of One Story Magazine, which is this literary magazine that I'm the editor of, and we publish one short story at a time. Um, and every every sort of sentence in the short story really has to be moving towards one one theme or one thought or one direction, whereas in a novel it's much more loose. That's sort of the only word I can use for it, and that it can go in a lot of different directions and be covering a lot of ground. So, so it's much more complicated, and, you know, novels are difficult to write. <laughs> I hope the next one doesn't take me six years. And and so, but but you have your notebooks that are always going because it seemed like that was another thing that I read about you, Hannah. You said that um, in your novel, you had when you came across the 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 um, the resurrection uh, boys. Wait, is it boys? The resurrection re- men. Men. Oh yeah, I don't know. why I tried to make it like there were t- tiny tiny young men. Um, the resurrection men. Like you, you actually you know glued that into your notebook and said you know possible novel idea. Um, have you found Have you found more of those that you want to start, or is the short story the medium that because because you, you're an ambassador for the short story as the you know the the founder one of the co founders and the the editor in chief you're an ambassador that that's um, keeping making sure we we keep the story alive. Exactly, I'm 
I'm saving the short story. I'm <laughs> doing my best to save the short story. I, I do think that um, short stories get the short end of the stick in many ways, uh, and oftentimes publishers won't take a chance on a short story collection because they don't sell as many copies as a novel. But um, we're finding, particularly with One Story Magazine, that, that there's a large readership out there. We have about 10,000 readers, and it's growing every day. So wow. for a literary magazine, that's quite large. That's, that is actually large, because I think on the one-story website, Hannah, it's, you've got it at 7,500, so 10,000. Yes. Yeah, so, it's, so that's, that's one thing to change. I know, we've got to keep I'm, updating it. <laughs> it's hard to keep your website updated. <laughs> that's a good, yeah, well, a nice problem to have, though, yes. actually. Um, uh, but... Uh, let's see, but the short, so do you have like a, like other things, like, do you want to take a, a break from the novel then, or do you have some things that are percolating still with that? Um, I, have a, I have a couple different ideas, a couple things that I'm trying out right now, and I'm, I haven't gotten too far on them. Um, all I know is that the next book, I do think it's probably going to be a novel, and in the same way that The Good Thief was really inspired by these sort of classic boys' adventure tales, I wanted the next book to be a love story uh, inspired by classic romance novels that I read, like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. Um, I, Jane Eyre is probably one of my favorite books, and I reread it every year. And I wanted to sort of do a love story sort of back and forth between two characters. So I've been fleshing out that and, and seeing where it goes, but I haven't written enough to really say for sure that's what's going to come next. Oh, and yeah, and perhaps you shouldn't, because to talk about it might um, release the uh, the necessity to write it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Sometimes the more I, write, I talk about something, the more real it seems, so I, I have to go through with it. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but we'll see. But right now I'm still, I'm still doing a lot of um, press and school visits for the good thief. Yes. Yeah. And you can, there's only so many hours, right, at the moment. Exactly. <laughs> well, well, let's take a short break, a short, short break, and then we'll be back to hear more. Um, we're talking today with Hannah Tinty, the, her novel, The Good Thief. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. It was a large room full of people, all kinds. And they had all arrived at the same building at more or less the same time. And they were all free. And they were all asking themselves the same question. What is behind that curtain?
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Hannah Tinty is speaking with us. Her novel, The Good Thief. Um, thanks to Brian Delaney for being in the engineering chair and, and finding these great, uh, the great music uh, to, for our breaks. And that was just Laurie Anderson. Um, <laughs> It's not sort of hauntingly beautiful there at the end, too. She really it? is, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Laurie Anderson connects into this because we started off the, the program with Milestone, um, Miles Davis with Charlie Parker. Um, and and you actually have a short story, uh, Hannah, uh, that, uh, we, that connects to Laurie Anderson. Would you, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, I have a short story that, that came out a number of years ago in an anthology called Lit Riffs, which was um, writers uh, writing short stories inspired by particular works of music, and I chose Milestones by Miles Davis. And it was uh, it was a lot of fun to write, and the, it was recently recorded on Selected Shorts, NPR's program, and Laurie Anderson was the person who read it. Unfortunately, I was overseas at the time, so I didn't get a chance to sit in the audience. I would have loved that. I would have loved the chance to meet her because I'm a fan, but I'll have to satisfy myself with hearing the audio recording instead (laughs) or hearing it on the radio. Uh, Well, maybe you guys will bump into each other one day in New York City anyway, as people tend to do, right? (laughs) Or maybe she'll come to the um, literary debutante ball that one story is throwing in May. (laughs) Yes, we're throwing our first benefit um, called the One Story Literary um, Debutante Ball. And what we're doing is featuring writers who have made their debuts with us. In other words, they've published their first short stories with us. Um, They're going to be our debutantes, and they're going to be escorted by established writers who have been mentors for them. Ooh, um, and how how is that set? Like, um, could you give us an example? Of- uh, for example, Michael Cunningham, who wrote The Hours, mm-hmm. is escorting uh, an old student of his named Amelia Kahaney. Um, we also have uh, Dan Sean, who's a fantastic writer, um, who is escorting a, um, a student of his, Sam Allingham. Um, let's see, we've got Tamara Jenkins, a screenwriter who won um, Oscar for um, The Savages, uh, is escorting a friend of hers, uh, Rebecca Berry. Oh, well, that sounds great. And then hosted by um, John Hodgman. Yes, John Hodgman, the comedian. He's best known for being the yeah. PC in the ads. I'm a Mac. I'm a PC. Right. Um, he's he's a, going to be our MC. He's a friend of the show here. Everybody, yeah, always. He's been on a couple of times, and everyone's always happy when he wanders down into the the studio here, as you can imagine. So you guys are going to have just a ton of fun. A ball. We're going to have a really good time. <laughs> We're also having. We also matched um, visual artists with different issues of One Story who are creating original art. That artwork will be um, displayed at the event and then later auctioned off. Uh, that's really interesting because um, because one story itself, like the 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 look of it, the aesthetic is is about the typeface and a and a particular color changing every three weeks. Yeah. You know, um, but that's it. Like very um, very very plain and understated. Yes, we do. We do eighteen issues a year. Um, it's just a single issue. It sort of looks like a chapbook, um, almost like one of those Samuel French plays. And um, that's it. It's just a simple one-story mail to you every three weeks. But now this is a way for for some visual artists to to connect into it, which sounds yes, great. it's gonna be very exciting. And I like on the website actually on One Story's website there for your for your latest writer. Um, 
Chester. Chester Knapp. Oh, Chester Knapp. Um, with the YouTube clip featuring the tennis players. <laughs> yes, he wrote a story called um, A Brief... Um, I'm sorry, now I'm going to blank on it in my head. Um, Wait, um, hold on, I wrote it down. I, I know, A Minor Momentousness in the History of Love. That's I believe it. that's it. That's it. <laughs> exactly. And it's a story that takes place during a famous Wimbledon match that happened in uh, 2001 between uh, Pete Sampras and Roger Federer. And so it's sort of this actual real event that happens. And, and Chester wrote the story about the ball boys and ball girls who sort of have this love triangle going on during the match. And so there's a separate sort of psychological match that's happening while this very famous match is also happening at the same time. And it's, it's a wonderful story, and we're really thrilled that Justin has made his debut with us. <laughs> that is great. So he's he's could be a real debutante. He is. He's actually going to be at the debutante ball as well, and he's going to be escorted by um, the great short story writer Jim Shepard, as well as his wife Karen Shepard, who's a fantastic novelist. Oh, that's right. Well, another shout-out to Jim, also friend of the show. So it's yeah. It's like a quite the party you're going to be hosting, Hannah. It's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Too bad we can't move Ann Arbor closer to, to New York City for the night. You guys um, can always come in for the, for the, for the weekend. Is, is everybody going to be wearing sort of um, funny attire as well? Or is I think it... people are going to get dressed up, um, and we're going to have white corsages for all the debutantes. Uh, very nice. Very nice. Maybe some long white gloves. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, well. Before we took the break, Hannah, you mentioned um, reading Jane Eyre every every year, and do, and do yeah. you like uh, why? Like, what what does it what is it about that particular story and the and the writing of it that that feeds you as a writer or as a human being? I think what I admire so much about Jane Eyre is that it's pretty much in three parts, and each part can appeal to someone at different stages of their life. Um, part one takes place at Lowood, which is the sort of the evil boarding school that Jane Eyre gets sent away with to, and she suffers there, um, and she stands up to... You know, the, the 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 exciting moments in the first part are when she stands up to authority, and it's a fantasy, I think, for children to tell off adults and teachers who are in charge of us, and Jane has this, the guts to do that uh, several times in part one and triumphs over her adversaries. Then in part two is when the romantic part of the story, where she moves to Thornfield Hall and falls in love with Mr. Rochester, um, so it sort of it appeals to, you know, probably people in their 20s, you know, who are very romantic or, or teenagers. And then part three is when she is in exile from Thornfield Hall and she meets her um, her cousins who are her, her cousin um, St. John, who, who's very religious, and it's really about God. And so it's sort of the spiritual life, uh, 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 sort of uh, the, the, the romantic life and, and childhood. So I think each time you, if you, when you reread this book at different times of your life, different different parts of the book appeal to you. I think this is one of the reasons why it's had such a long and active and important shelf life since it's been published. Yes, but it, but it's interesting that it's so so critical to you. Yes. Um, is it I, just, I find the- Jane Eyre very appealing. She 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 never uh, backs down. She stays very true to herself. And I, I'm always striving to do that myself. And so, and so, when is it something where you just happen to to 
pick it like is it every summer hannah or could it be at any point it's just at some point in the year you're going to definitely be reading. Uh, I think it depends on the time and what, what's going on. I mean, everyone has their comfort reading, I think, if you're if you're a big reader like I am. Um, there's other books that I go back to often, but I think probably Jane Eyre is the, the one I go off, you know, back to the most. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's kind of, what can you, what are some of the other ones that are? Um, certain comic books, actually. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I read and reread um, Tintin all the time. Yes. Yes. Um, I love, love those books and love the characters <laughs> and they never get old. You know, you can just constantly read it and reread it and reread it. Um, you know, for heavier stuff, I mean, I, I do tend to go back and reread and read sections of Proust as well. Ah, ah. So, so that's lovely. Like, so that writing—that's because I was just wondering if there would be like this connection with, if there was a connection between Tintin the Bruce ones. And Jane Eyre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, maybe that's your childhood romantic in the spirit. All like in the different. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. I don't, any, anyway, but no, those are well, all wonderful. Um, books and uh um so so hannah let's, let's go back and talk a little bit more about the good thief um not but i'm realizing not that you haven't talked and talked about it so <laughs> forgive me for probably asking i'm someone. always happy to talk more about it you are you are yes. okay your fingers aren't crossed right now no <laughs> um so so the writing of it it came to you I, I love how it wasn't like a chronology of the writing like the first scene is actually you said i think chapter 15 in in the book um yes i actually wrote the middle of the book first and then I wrote the beginning and then I wrote the end that then that has some crazy kind of sense to it it does. it does it does it ends up being the funny thing is is that, so the first scene I wrote is the one I described at the beginning of our talk um you know about this scene in the graveyard and then the second chapter I wrote was when uh Ren and Dolly who's one of the characters who appears in that scene um where they actually accidentally dig up someone who's still alive um, and then Ren and that man who's named Dolly become friends in the next scene and after I wrote those first two chapters I just stopped for a moment and thought well who is this kid and how did he end up here so then I went back to the beginning and wrote about St. Anthony's and, and, and Benjamin arriving and sort of being his leading him through this experience and then I had to figure out what happened so the, those two chapters that I wrote have not changed I mean maybe a, maybe a line here or a par- you know, a, a period here, a comma there, but they stayed exactly the same from when I first wrote them. So for me, they were really the center of the wheel, and everything else around it changed a million times. And yes, and the and the anchor really, mm-hmm. yeah, the center of the wheel. Um, and so, is it? Do you feel like that's something um, that you were su- surprised that happened, or just something that you needed, and so you you made it? that 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 would be well no i guess it it seems like it seems natural that um it was the most powerful thing that, 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 that had occurred to me, and I, and I visually saw it. And I'm, I'm all about trusting your intuition as a writer. Uh, that's how I write. I don't plan things out. I don't plot. I don't write little note cards. I just vis- try to visualize a scene and then enter it and then let whatever happens happen. Um, so I, I kind of usually describe it to my students as using a divining rod. Um, you, you sort of hold the stick out in front of you, and then it leads you somewhere. And if you can stay true to that vein of of of, of thought.
spot, then almost always it leads you in the right direction. And and so, and that's actually thank you for going back to to the visual aspect of the image, Hannah, because that's where I had what I had wanted to ask you about. So with that being the anchor and the center, um, were there other moments like as you started writing that you're entering into the vision, and then those images are coming to you too? But that those those first ones with Ren and then Dolly, those are the ones that are like unshakable. Like, like it's almost as if you've had an epiphany or something. It was. It was It was one of those very rare moments as a writer where literally clouds part, ray of light shines on desk, <laughs> uh, angels sing, and, and you have a moment where you know 100% that this is right. Um, I don't know if that's ever going to happen again for the rest of my life, but I'm very grateful that it happened this time and it happened with Ren. As soon as I had that character, as soon as I, you know, knew he was missing his hand, everything sort of fell into place in my mind, and I could see the book you know, in, my, in my head. In your, oh, okay. Like an, the actual artifact of the book or just like a story of that's going to have to happen? Have to I sort of, I knew the arc of the story. Okay. I, knew that, I knew that it was going to be an adventure tale. I knew it was going to be about this boy. I knew that he was missing a hand and that the story was going to be about what happened to him, why he was missing his hand, and eventually he would find the hand and find out what has happened to him. And, and do you, yeah, that sounds sort of grim, like he would find the hand. Do you, do you yeah. have, <laughs> but it's true, folks. It is true. Um, so, and, and do you have plans like, does he come back in any sort of images as an adult to you? Um, a lot of people have asked me if I'm going to write a sequel to this book. There's been a lot of, um, I've gotten a lot of emails through my website, people asking me, begging me to continue the story. Um, it might in so- someday. I'm not sure just yet um, if it will or not. I, I definitely have ideas about where the story would go from here. So maybe someday. Mm. Well, cause, and it is like, it's like, it's a setting that you, you're comfortable with having gr- grown up in Salem, Massachusetts. And, and maybe when we come back, let's talk a little bit about the research aspect of the book, Hannah. Sure. Um, does that sound good? Okay. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Hannah Tinty, her novel, The Good Thief, will be back. I'm so happy Cause today Found my friends Here in my head I'm so ugly That's okay Cause so are you Broke our mirrors Sunday morning Is every day For all I care And I'm not scared Light my candles In our days Cause I found God Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today, Hannah Tinty, her novel, The Good Thief, and we just heard a little bit of Nirvana. Um, Always good on a sunny day. (laughs) Um, Hannah, is it sunny with you? It is actually a beautiful day today in Brooklyn, um, and I'm so glad the weather has finally turned to the warm to the warm, you know, the warmthness of summer, yeah, or nearly there. It almost makes you forget there was ever a pile of snow outside your door, doesn't it? Exactly, and oh. only a few weeks ago. <laughs> right, right. 
Well, well, thanks again for being on the program. I mean, it's great. It's it's great to talk with you. And and thanks for these musical picks. These selections. oh, thanks. Yeah, Nirvana was um, <laughs> what I ended up doing. This was another pick for that Australian show where I had to pick um, a musician who had who had passed away, and I chose Nirvana. Um, and that I chose this story. This. Um, song, uh, Lithium 2, represent Dolly, who is this character who comes back from the dead in the middle of the book. And who you were just mentioning. We were just yes. talking about as being one of those those anchor people exactly. um, for you. He's a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> he probably should have been on Lithium. How did you get, I mean, maybe he was, that's maybe how he ended up in, in the, the buried situation, but, um, but, but Hannah, how did you, um, well, actually let's go, let's talk. Do you mind if we talk a little bit about the research for it? Because, sure. um, cause the, you stayed with this, this story and you inhabited this, this world with Dolly and Ren, um, for six years. And, um, so how, what were some of the, the things that you, you knew, you, you said you were, you know, you grew up in Salem, so you had a sense of like the Gothic, um, and graveyards, uh, the no stranger to that. Um, how did you fill in some of the other pieces? Um, yeah, it was it was it was lucky. I mean, I, I, I well, this book was an homage to these sort of classic tales like Dickens and Stevenson. All those are set, of course, in in the UK, and so I wanted to set a book like that, but here in the United States. And I set it in New England, so it's set in New England in the 1800s. And lucky for me, I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, as you said, so I knew how everything should look. I grew up in a, one of the historical sections of the city, so all the homes the home where I grew up was built in the 1800s, and the, the homes where all my friends grew up were built in the 1700s and 1800s, and there was even a few left built from the 1600s. So it was very easy for me to imagine how everything should look and feel um, and inhabit that world of, of New England in the 1800s. Um, for research, I actually followed the advice of my thesis advisor from graduate school, who was E.L. Doctorow, who does a lot of writing about histor- historical events and historical people himself. And he gave this great advice, which was, on your first draft, don't do any research. Ah. He said, we've all seen enough movies to fake it. <laughs> to fake a time period, to fake, you know, you kind of vaguely know, okay, they had horse and carriage, they, you know, they should have probably looked like this. And the the reason why he said that is because he felt that otherwise your research will drive your narrative instead of your characters driving your narrative. Yes. And unless you have strong characters, no one's going to want to read your book. So his feeling was do as little as possible on your first draft, and then that's when you do the research. When you know the story, you know the characters, and you know what happens. That's when you start going and reading old newspapers, which is what I did. I went to the public library and read tons of old newspapers on microfiche. I read histories of medical schools. I read histories about resurrection men and about, you know, different sort of medical medical information because there's a there's a, a bunch of the book that happens that has to do with a hospital yes yeah. yes yeah and and ren making a deal with them um mm-hmm. at some point too um so so hannah but how so how did that i love the fact that then that that he said that like so fake it for the first draft um yes. and so when like so let's picture you you're at the new york public library you're reading newspapers from the 1800s to get a sense of like maybe the day-to-day language like maybe how 
the people would speak as well or the concerns? Of- yeah, different things came up. Um, one of the probably the most important ones that I can give an example is I was thinking about the, the, when I originally wrote my first draft about the grave robbers. And, of course, I imagined it like Frankenstein and, and all the other sort of sense, you know, Im- <laughs> images we have of grave robbers, which is they, they dug up the grave and then they lifted the grave out and put it on the ground and then they pried open the coffin and then lit, took the body out. Uh, but in fact, these resurrection men were, were much smarter than that. They would instead only dig a hole around the head of the coffin and then break the coffin with sort of a long-handled spade. And then they would use these chains with meat hooks on the ends and hook the body out and pull it that way. Oh. That way they actually didn't have to go through all the trouble of digging up the whole coffin, which would have taken way too much time. And they were always concerned about being found out. So they had to get in and out as quickly as possible. So that's why they used to call resurrecting going fishing. Because of the meat hooks. Because of the hooks, yeah, because you were trying to hook the body and pull it out. Ugh. So it's kind of creepy, yes. But well, an interesting detail that I was able to add later and just and, and sort of feather into the book. And so that's, those are those moments. So when you're yes. going back in like a, like a future draft... You find exactly. I went in and rewrote the, the scenes when they were in the graveyard and, and rewrote them to, to, to fit those specifications. That's that. Thank you, Hannah, for coming. That Yeah, that's a great example. That's um, so did it. Did you find it changing at all then the way like the, the rhythm of the voices or were those voices such a part of the strong characters that you'd created in the first draft that that was really left alone? Well, I very consciously used modern language in this book. I didn't want to try and imitate right. 1800 style. Right. So uh, the characters really speak uh, almost as if they're living now. I didn't want to sort of go into old speak, which you know I find very difficult sometimes when you read historical novels and they're trying to be so historically accurate that they can sometimes put a barrier between the reader and the page. Yes, but so, you do with the, with the accent, like McGinty. Uh, yes. You'll change like the way so that we get a sense of how his voice has that like a very thick accent to it. Yeah, McGinty was a um, McGinty is a the baddest bad guy in the story, <laughs> and he appears in part three because he's he unredeemed. Becomes... Actually, I'm sorry. He's not. He's the one that's not redeemed. Um, yeah, even he has a little. Oh, he's okay. <laughs> I must be feeling judgmental somehow. <laughs> he's, a, he's a really bad guy. And I, when I wrote him into the book, I, I knew that eventually Rem would have to face a huge barrier like this. And uh, But at that point in the book, he'd already had so many terrible things happen to him and had so many scary things happen to him. Uh, it was hard for me to imagine how this one character could be more frightening than anything else. And I kept trying to write him, and I had a difficult time. He was one of the most difficult characters to write in the book, until finally I had this idea of giving him a very strong Boston North Shore accent, which is where I grew up. And so I, I basically make it, made him sound like everybody I grew up with but wrote it phonetically out on the page. So he's a little hard to understand, 